0: Hey, this is Maureen. Just as tonight's episode was winding its way through the cyber pipeline to your device, some developments happened in the Anthony Sanborn case that we talk about tonight. So listen to tonight's episode. I think you'll find it really interesting. But also keep an eye out for a mini-episode that'll drop in the next couple days with some updates and some other cool stuff. And thanks for listening. <laughs> Hey, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff. And we're the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is episode twenty two. Twenty two. And today we this was a really busy week for both of us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so. So we're doing a little bit more free-form. freeform. Yeah. Well, not ta- I do have the background. We did freeform on our Jean Bonnet episode well, 6, and that freeform. was a yeah. pretty popular episode. Yeah. So, yeah I was. Think. We kind of end up going free- It's the free- second most popular after the Yoga Twins. I know. We, we kind of end up going free-form. Well, yeah. It's not like we stick to a really strict script, but we believe it or not, we do write a script. We try to stick we, to we it. We do. Yeah. But for well, not for our recommendations, but for for our, right our recommendations, we usually just do totally we have in. any uh, updates on anything? I'm trying to think. I can't think of any. I can't think of anything either. Okay, mm, okay. I guess we I don't. I thought there was something, but I can't think. But of But tonight, tonight's story is one that's homegrown. Yeah, and we which, just we were gonna do it later. But we decided. Yeah, well, last week we discussed it a little bit and thought and said, "Oh, we should do a we should so do an at episode at some point." And then we thought then we, we said, might as well do it now. Not. It's in the news, and it's it's a very interesting. It's case. very many. It it's going to bring up a lot of many things. Portland, um, specifically. Portland, the the, the kids. The Youth Center, Allen's Coffee, Brandy. Yeah. Um, all sorts of people working at DeMillo's, all sorts of main things. Yeah. But the story, it's been in the news this week, is Anthony... And it, it was a historic ruling, or a historic... It was. Yeah. And I'm sorry. A, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm right. sorry. Anthony Sanborn was convicted in 1992 of killing Jessica Briggs, and last week he was let out on bail while his conviction is looked at. And I'm not sure what the real legal term for that is, but it's the first time that's happened in Maine. And as we all know, prosecutors, once they put somebody in jail, they don't want to say that the guy should be let out. Why don't I just get to the story, then we'll talk about okay. it. Okay. On May 24th, 1989, Jessica Briggs, 16, was brutally murdered on one of Portland, Maine's piers. I think it was the Maine State the Maine Pier. Maine State Pier. Her shoes, an earring, a pack of cigarettes, and a pool of blood were discovered on the pier by employees of Bath Iron Works. A lone who, earring. A I lone heard. earring were discovered. It, it's it, Boy, if that were the sign of a crime, I, I have so many like single I earrings. I know, me too. Bath Iron Works had a dry dock yes. there at the time, yes. and some Bath Iron Works employees found that in the morning, and they said, ooh, looks like something bad might have happened here. They called the cops, and her body was found in the water, under of the dock. Under the dock. There were no happy faces. There uh, were no happy faces. No. It was later that day they found her body. It's believed that she'd been lying on the dock. When her throat was cut, mm. um, it severed her windpipe and her carotid artery. Carotid. She had multiple other stab wounds to her neck and her torso, mm. including one that penetrated her right lung and would have been fatal if her carotid artery hadn't been cut. Her lower abdomen was sliced from one side to the other, leaving her disemboweled. Uh and partially Sorry. eviscerated. Oh. Yeah, poor yeah. Girl. She was 16 at the time. She was a wall from the nearby Maine youth center and she was one of a roving group of teens. I shouldn't say roving group of teens that makes them sound like a gang, but she was one of many of Portland's street kids. Yeah. The kids weren't necessarily I would from call Portland them part-time street kids. Some part-time. of them had homes, but they would spend a lot of time on the streets.
1: Right. She didn't
0: the- she but she Right, and they weren't all from Portland. She like, was from Augusta, but one of the reasons the kids, a lot of the kids, congregated in Portland. Although I will say that a lot congregated in Augusta when we were kids. Yeah, is because that's where the main news center is at the time. It wasn't fenced in, and kids would just walk away. And Portland. Is the biggest city in the state, and if you're going to hang out anywhere, that's where you're going to hang yeah. out. and they have a soup kitchen, which a lot of smaller towns don't. Yep. Well, they didn't then. They do now. I mean, smaller towns didn't back then. Now they did. This is what happens when we. Okay. This is ahead. what happens when you don't let me get through my script. Ah, uh, Ela. Mm, okay, go E-la. ahead. Ela, what does that mean? English is a second language. It was like, there were a lot of kids like that back then. Mm -hmm. They were in and out of foster homes, in and out of their own homes, in and out of the youth center. They hung out on the streets of Portland. Many, like Jessica, were youth center walkaways. Yes. And, well, it was a state's prison for teens. As I said, it didn't have fences. It did not have fences, but, well, we can talk more about the youth center later. Yes. I used to volunteer there. It was in 1993, so it was several years after this happened, and they did not have fences at the time, but it's up on a hill. Well, they've totally changed where it is now. It's in the same area. It's not in those brick buildings no. there? No, those are offices and condos and other oh. crap. And now it's called Longwood something. Long, no, it's Long Pond, Long, Long Creek, Long Creek, because there was a creek. Huh. There's a creek that goes around it. So it it and it actually like a, a moat. Lo- one chi- one one of the kids that ran away once drowned in that. Oh. creek. it's like a creek that swells sometimes, and it's it's and at 295 borders it, so it's not that easy on that side. Yeah, you it's like a natural There were barrier. ways to get, but it it was hard to. One of the articles I read said that a lot of them disappeared and they couldn't find them. But when I worked there, they caught them all the time within hours. It's not like they disappeared like a missing kid. They They took took off. off. And I don't know how hard they really tried. Briggs was getting her life together. She worked as a waitress at DeMillo's, which is a popular restaurant on the waterfront where a lot of her friends, as you'll see, also worked. And it's a popular tourist spot. Yeah. She had oh, dated Uncle Jimmy. yeah, yes. She had dated Tony Sanborn. It's not clear, you know, when you have a loose group of kids like that, who's dating whom and that type of thing. But the Portland police conducted more than a hundred interviews after her body was found, but they quickly settled on Tony Sanborn. He was also, as I said, a drift away from the main news center. His parents lived in Portland, and sometimes he was at their house, and sometimes he wasn't. His dad was pretty sure he was there the night Jessica was murdered. He had gone to bed. He was in a third-floor bedroom that you couldn't get in or out of without going through the rest of the house. As far as his dad knew, Tony hadn't left the house, but police got the dad to say, well, I guess he could have and I wouldn't have known kind of thing. Despite the lack of any physical evidence linking Sanborn to Briggs' murder and the reliance on shaky and conflicting accounts from a trio of questionable sources, only one of whom claimed to have actually seen the murder. Sanborn was arrested in the spring of 1990, and it was determined in November of 1990 he'd be tried as an adult, and he was convicted in October of 1992 of Briggs' murder and sentenced to 70 years in the Maine State Prison. A 1994 appeal based on the fact that he should have been tried as a juvenile, as well as the fact that the state failed to give the defense timely information concerning one of the witnesses, Jerry Rossi, who I'll talk about a little later, that was a Brady violation, as we learned from Matt. I wish yes. I could remember what episode Matt talked about Brady violation. I don't know, but I knew about it because when I listened to Breakdown, the first season of Breakdown, you knew what it was. Yes. And now we I know what so it is. Proud. But, but we know what a Brady violation is because of Matt, and that's the prosecution not giving all its evidence to the defense. And that was the one thing that was brought up in the 1994 appeal. The judge determined it was a simple oversight that it took eight months for the prosecution to get information about Jerry Rossi, which I'll talk about later to the defense, and the appeal was not upheld. Sanborn had been known to the police. They considered him trouble, although if you look back at his record and we'll talk about that a little later, he really hadn't done anything real bad. But one of the things he'd done that they didn't like is he was supposed to be he was supposed to testify before a grand jury in another murder in Portland. and the day he was supposed to testify, he took off on a bus for Virginia Beach and that pissed them off. It was on their radar very early. They really didn't, by most accounts, look at anybody else. In Sorry. an article at the time he was convicted, Pam Ames, who was the assistant attorney general in the case, in a newspaper article, said that Hope Katie's testimony was essential in winning a conviction. And we'll talk about her in a few minutes, too. Both the newspaper story and Ames' closing statement at trial said that Katie came forward for the first time in 1992, mm-hmm. after a year and a half after Sanborn was in jail, and said she had witnessed the murder. She hadn't. Spoken earlier out of fear, according to Ames, but she had decided to come forward as a sixteen year old to say what she had seen when she was thirteen. Yeah, right. And that was the evidence that Ames pointed to and that the newspaper pointed to that really nailed Sanborn. Katie also claimed a lot of other things, including that she saw Michelle Lincoln, another part of the group of friends, and who's now Samborn's wife hunch mm-hmm. Briggs before Samborn stabbed her. And she said she saw two other people there. There were other times she told police that Sanborn was the only person she saw Briggs. So she couldn't keep her stories. And I, I want to interrupt to say that from what I read, she was not close friends with them. No, she wasn't. She knew who she they were. She kind of knew who they were, but she, was, she wasn't part of their no. group or friends. Michelle Lincoln, who was 15 at the time, refused to testify in Sanborn's trials um taking the fifth and we really won't know what why she felt she'd incriminate herself although i'll say that if she was treated well also she was one of the kids that was living on the street chances are she committed she might have committed some crimes and maybe she was afraid if she got on the stand i'm not really sure but if you testify for something you're opening yourself up yes you are And and maybe so maybe someone advised her to do that and as we'll learn, the police were kind of loose with threatening these kids, so who knows what was said to her. I don't blame her. I would have done the same thing. So, Tony Sanborn was in prison. The story kind of died out. In 2005, unbeknownst to anyone except for the um, Maine Attorney General's office and the FBI, an inmate in New Jersey said that he was talking to the FBI about another case and said he had to get something off his chest and said that he had killed Briggs. The FBI got in touch with the AG's office, found that the guy was confessing to a murder that had actually happened, but they determined that he was just saying it because he wanted to be imprisoned in Maine, back home in Maine rather than in New Jersey. Apparently he was acquainted with this group and nothing more came of the case and no legal team or anyone of Sanborn's was ever told about this confession. Mm Mm-hmm. So, at some point, and this is a mystery that none of the newspapers who have covered this, or any of the news organizations have covered this. And we've tried to find out. But we, we... if we had tried really hard, we'd find out. Yeah, we. But we, we had decided to do this just a few days ago. And, and maybe we will find out. Yeah, it's why know. this happened. We we know the state of Maine. It wasn't their idea. But at some point right. around 2011, the state started looking back into the evidence that had been gathered in Tony Sanborn's case, and we know this. And we'll attach it to our site. The 104 page document the request for bail by Amy Fairfield the lawyer who was assigned to represent Tony Sanborn in 2016 on this matter so obviously she was assigned to do it there was some reason she was assigned by the state but, even though she's a defense we don't have in Maine we do not have public defenders the state will assign an attorney to you know we can always clarify with Matt when he if, if we ever see him but, again. <laughs> so they, they must have had a reason to assign because the state right. pays for it. But we don't know yet. So Amy we'll Fairfield, out. at the beginning of April, filed a 104-page document that we're going to attach to our site, and it's fascinating, about what went wrong in Tony Sanborn's case, and this was the motion that he be given bail and be allowed. And she actually asked, asked for the charges against him to be dismissed. But here's what, here's in a nutshell, and we're going to talk about it more but I just want you guys to all know what the basics are, what Fairfield found out. There was the Brady violation that was mentioned in the 1994 appeal. That was that Jerry Rossi, who police said, told them, and I'm trying to remember what Matt told us about hearsay, but Jerry Rossi told police that Tony Sanborn told him three times that he had killed Briggs. And that isn't hearsay because Tony told him. Okay, thank you. I'm the one that was trying remember. to clarify it with I Matt. I couldn't remember. If, I if somebody confused. else had said, hey, Jerry Rossi told me that Tony told him, then that would have been But his. none of those statements by Jerry Rossi are on tape telling police that Tony Sanborn told him he had killed Briggs. What is on tape? Jerry Rossi was living in Florida at the time, and the Portland police called the Florida cops, and they went to interview Jerry Rossi. Is Rossi saying a good dozen times in a lot of different ways that, no, he never told me that. Tony Sanborn never told me he killed Jessica Briggs. He didn't tell me that. He never told me that. And the Florida cop brought up, and the Portland police later said he just kind of made this up, that there were three or four rapes that Portland police could tie jerry rossi too and he better young under 14 of young girls girls and that but that could all go away if he testifies in this and police say they don't make promises like that but i think they they imply that to people and give me a break so that so that is on tape and jerry rossi was sent back to maine and police did have a, and it's a long, complicated thing in the document, but I'll say they do have a photo of him in a sexually naked, in a sexually <laughs> compromising position with a naked underage girl. She's thirteen. The girl, he and another buddy, got her and a friend of hers drunk on the classic Maine the beverage, the main state Church. beverage, Allen's Coffee, Brandy. Allen's Coffee Brandy, and they went, out, they went to a motel in Augusta. Police confronted the girl about it. I'm not sure in what context. She didn't really, she wanted to press charges. They said you have to go to Augusta to do that. They brought her in because they wanted to find out more about the Sanborn connection and stuff. She wanted to go up to Augusta to press charges, but her mom, classic Maine, they didn't have money for gas <laughs> to make the 45 to an hour trip to Augusta, 45 minutes to an hour trip to Augusta. So the girl didn't press charges, she remembered, in 2016. But she was 13 or 14 at the time. Jerry Rossi, he was in his late 20s. He was in like late 20s, yes. He was never charged with anything, apparently. So, promises or not, he did end up testifying at Tony Sanborn's trial. And we'll talk about it more later. Well, I just want to say, clarify, he was a roommate. He Tony Sanborn stayed with him sometimes. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. Thank you. And he did testify at the trial that Tony Sanborn had told him that he had killed Jessica Briggs. And this was the second thing after Hope Katie, who I'm going to get to in a minute, that was a big point for the prosecution. That whole thing about him telling the Florida guy, the only interview of his that's on tape, that he didn't, it wasn't brought up because the defense wasn't told about it till very shortly before the trial and couldn't do a lot on it. And that's what the 1994 appeal was based on. That was the Brady violation. All of the interviews with the important people in this case that the prosecution used, their transcripts of their interviews were not made available to the defense or anyone else, but rather one of the detectives in the case, I think it was Detective Daniel Young, there was a James Daniels and a Daniel Young, so it's confusing, boiled them all down to a quote-unquote narrative form. I think this is a good time to point that out. So you don't get to see what they actually said. You get his perception or his belief of what they said. He had people signed their statements and like one of the people was illiterate. He was functionally illiterate. I'm sorry. His name was Glenn Brown. <laughs> Thank you. And his testimony was that he had seen Tony Sanborn the day before, a couple days before Briggs was killed, and he and Briggs were holding hand. They had been on and off again. Oh, so they were on again and they were so happy and they were gonna go for a walk in the old port and blah blah blah. Then he saw Sanborn the next day the day before Briggs was found dead and Sanborn supposedly showed him a new knife that he had and all the kids had knives that's pretty clear and by the way this quote unquote new knife was never found he had no murder weapon right he did have lots of knives Like you said kids had knives all the time when I was in high school kids carried knives all the time and he supposedly said something to Glenn Brown about that he was looking for Briggs he was mad at her and he was gonna go do something to her and there's a lot in in the 104 page document about what kids were around and what weren't. Glenn Brown was kind of confused. He had a lot of testimony that contradicted itself. He later said that that never happened. That he never had that conversation with Sam and He recanted it. But the police. Had him sign a statement saying he said that Glenn Brown was illiterate. He did not know how to read. I don't know what they told him was in the statement, but he didn't write it and didn't sign it. There was a guy named David Schwartz who told police that he saw a guy on a bicycle riding along next to Jessica Briggs. And while Tony Sanbor did have a bike, he nobody ever put him on a bike that night. There were some kids on bikes that these other kids had met up with. They got Schwartz to identify that person at some point as Tony Sanborn. Although nobody else had said Tony was on a bike or anything. They also told Sanborn that they interviewed all sorts of Bath Iron Works workers who identified seeing Sanborn at the site, and that was a total lie. They had never... So it was the kind of thing where police were manipulating these kids. But the biggest evidence as we said was hope katie hope katie was a 13 year old girl she was as troubled as the rest of these kids at the time she was a ward of the state she had a dhhs caseworker margaret bragdon who seemed attentive and to talk to her a lot and actually seemed unlike the ones we talked about a couple of <laughs> yeah. to be on top of this kid and to have her best interests at heart and to be very engaged in what was going on with her police started talking to hope katie in 1990 from Margaret Bragdon's notes yeah you can tell that they were intimidating her at one time they called her a fucking bitch mm-hmm. she said they were rude to her this is a 13 year old girl a 13 year old girl with emotional issues and with no adult around to advocate for her with I no might adult add. they talked to her without Bragdon or anyone else present bragdon says a couple times in her notes from the time and she said eh, it, just recently at the hearing that she was surprised police never talked to her or asked her anything. And she, and she kept a journal, just like, remember, during the uh, Logan Martin thing, I said I thought they must have to keep journals as part of their job. Well, apparently it is, because I read it in one of these articles, that part of their job as a caseworker is to keep uh, a record in a uh, written journal of their interactions. And she kept a really good journal. She did, and there are excerpts from it in this 104-page document yeah. that are great to read because they totally contradict what police said Pam Ames said at the 1992 trial that Hope had just come forward. Well, police have been badgering Hope since 1990 to testify. What police and Pam Ames didn't tell the defense was that Hope, Katie, who said she saw from a distance she was by a dumpster, some 30 yards away at night on a rainy portland night saw tony sambord kill jessica briggs she had 2200 vision she didn't wear glasses and even when she did they didn't correct her vision very well because of she had an optic nerve a degenerative optic nerve Mm -hmm. issue it was known to police this was known to them in 1990-91 there's multiple documentation Is showing that this was a discussion. Yeah, because she was a ward of the state. There was a record of her medical issues. She also had hearing. (laughs) Yeah. issues she claimed she could hear them talking and recognize their voices even though she didn't know them that well well she had severe hearing issues and she also had emotional and mental issues she had been in amhi which was uh, the augusta mental, mental health, health institute yeah. which was the state hospital back then the state now it's but, called what riverfront or some river Riverfest. No, <laughs> river <laughs> it's called something nice like because you know you don't want and things that, to be called yeah. bad things so Amy Fairfield, the lawyer for Tony Sanborn, laid out in her document the Brady violations of the prosecution delaying evidence and, in some cases, withholding it, as they did about their star witness's vision problem that I think certainly would have been a point in the case. And Pam Ames, in the case, um, Hope was 16 when she testified. There's an excerpt in the thing. (laughs) Pam Ames asked Hope if she... Has vision problems and Hope says she does. And Pam Ames asked her if she did in 1989, and and Hope says no, but she did, and all the evidence was there that she did. And the the poor little girl was just a but I have liar. to wonder about the defense attorney. I know that it wasn't kind of fair because they didn't have information. But I just wonder how much they were paying attention because she brought that up. I don't know. It just seems I would wonder why she brought it up. But it sounds like the defense didn't have a lot of time. And and one of the, well one of the issues, which it always is on appeal, is is ineffective counsel. So although they didn't in this, they didn't say the counsel was ineffective for whatever reason, and we're not sure why. Although there have been some vague references into the press that the Innocent Project, Innocence Project. Was involved, although I can't find anything on there. I would like to ask Amy Fairfield, but we didn't have time to do that. The um, the the newspaper reporters of the state who do this for a living did have time to do it, and nobody in any of these articles appeared. To have asked why was this looking, started to look at again. I mean, Tony Sanborn has always maintained his innocence, but him maintaining his innocence isn't going to have them decades later start, anybody start looking into it. It's an unprecedented decision. It's an unprecedented... so historical. So Amy Fairfield laid out the Brady violations as well as what she called misconduct by the police Mm -hmm. and by Pam Ames, and we'll talk a little more about that because I just want to get to the end. She also pointed out because there's there have been references to in fact semen being found on Briggs's underpants and they did a swab of and they did a swab but no other references to any of that is and we know no matter whose DNA is on there and that was in the very early days of DNA and I don't even know if the Portland Police Department was doing DNA testing although they did test semen for blood type and stuff like that but all that would show is she had sex with somebody you know it doesn't semen but even then you know it would connect her with someone so, Amy Fairfield says in her motion for bail not only that there's evidence like the Charles Hall 2005 confession and other things that might even point to Tony Sanborn's innocence, but she points out that the misconduct and the Brady violations almost make that a moot point. The fact that he was convicted on just about nothing are reason to dismiss the case. And she also says in her motion, The files and records are voluminous in this case, and the suppressed evidence has made this case incredibly difficult to parse through, as there appears to be a massive effort to mask withheld evidence on the part of state actors. Undersigned counsel, that's she and her team, has worked on this case nearly every day with rare exceptions since being assigned in May 2016. Through diligence and persistence, newly discovered evidence is surfacing on a regular and frequent basis, the likes of which are hopefully never seen again. And it's funny, you read this document and you read a lot of, like, you'd almost feel it was legal hyperbole if you weren't so kind of blown away by what had happened. Yes. (laughs) She also points (laughs) out the the horror of the crime, the way Jessica was eviscerated points to somebody who's more of a violent person or who has behaved that way in the past. And she points out that Tony is a gentle guy and he had never had, despite what Pam Ames called his, you know, history of violence and stuff, he really didn't have one. He was, like a lot of the kids, he was a street fighter and had gotten into scrapes. He got a OUI In December 1989, before he was arrested, he had taken off when he was supposed to testify. I think he had some minor drug things. He had also uh, driving on suspended license, which I can tell you from working in a law office in Maine, that's a pretty common thing to get after an OUI because what happens, OUI is operating under the influence. Uh, You get that, and then your license is suspended, and then you keep driving because you have to get to work or whatever, so they see you driving and you get that one. So that was pretty common. But everything he had was nonviolent crimes. Right. Like he wasn't like a seri- like going around raping girls and stuff no, when he was no. a teenager. Or attacking people. He had no assaults or any despite, you know, his knife loving ways. And so about two weeks ago, Tony Sanborn was let out on bail after twenty seven years in prison. Which is and unprecedented, uh, it's as unprecedented said. in the state of Maine. He awaits a court date. I think Fairfield and others rooting for people's constitutional rights, are hoping the state will just dismiss the charges. I give the judge, Wheeler, I give her a lot of credit for taking this seriously because we know that the state hates to admit... Joyce. Joyce Wheeler. We know the state hates to admit they fucked up. And one of the articles, Fairfield, says that she does credit the uh, assistant... um, Attorney General, sorry. Not Pam Ames. (laughs) No, she does credit the current Assistant Attorney General for being open to, he was actually helpful. Although when this motion was filed in early April, the AG's office was quoted in a Portland Press-Herald story saying they were going to fight it, but I don't think they understood what the overwhelming amount of firepower on the defense side was at the time. Oh, this is a quote from an article that was in the paper last week. In a phone interview Monday, Fairfield lauded Assistant Attorney General Donald Maycumber, who assisted Assistant Attorney General Pamela Ames in prosecuting Sanborn 25 years ago. Maycumber is now representing the state in Sanborn's current motion for for mail. And I would say that I would say that if Pamela Ames was still in that office... It might not be happening the way it's happening. I agree. I totally agree, especially given and her I, reaction to this. First of all, Amy Fairfield wants her to testify and tried to subpoena her and, and went to her Waterville she's office. Not her. She had to chase her around. She was finally managed after days to give her the subpoena. She said she's never had so much difficulty subpoenaing a person. Well, and lawyers you. aren't that hard to find around the Rock. Yeah, but of her they also court. know how to avoid a subpoena. They do. And then Pam Ames gave some phone interviews. She claimed on Channel Eight that Jessica Briggs was a prostitute and Tony Sanborn was her pimp, which is funny because I don't think I haven't read the I haven't. transcript. Although I would like to now. <laughs> Me too. I I think Pamela Ames is going to be thrown right under a bus I because think she, she is, is not in that office that, anymore. Whether I, I or not I will she say, deserves it, I don't even know if the fact if Jessica Briggs was a prostitute or sex worker or even just. The kind of kid living on the street who had to you give do. a blow job or two or whatever, so she could eat, and Tony Sanborn was her quote unquote pimp yeah. or whatever, oh, and he was mad because he was she wasn't giving him her tips from Demillo's or Which, some bullshit some I bullshit have not crap. read that anywhere else in any think, document in any of the police things we have, and think she's else. pulling that out of her ass, I think she is too before we go on to talk about we're going to talk about the various I just want to say. Since Tony Samborn has been in prison, he's been not only a model prisoner, but more than a model prisoner. He got a GED fairly early. They have all these letters from people for his both for his 1994 appeal and for this lauding him. He's involved in literacy programs, teaching other prisoners to read. I mean, there's a lot of stuff and you can one read. one that it. he's involved in about like um, long distance dads or helping guys reunite with their children because apparently has a daughter, Santana. And I just want to, I don't want to read all these, but there was one I found poignant from his cousin. Even the misspellings I find a little poignant. Oh, I know. And this was to, written to Amy Fairfield last September, and it's from his cousin, Jackie Spaulding. And it says, To whom it may concern, I am Jacqueline Spaulding, I am a cousin of Tony Sanborn. We grew up in the same environment. We had to deal with a lot of different things growing up. Parents that did not know how to parent. Alcohol was a major factor in our life. Abuse followed. Yet my cousin Tony always knew how to make me feel safe. He was there through many of my beatings and somehow always found a way to make me not hurt so bad. He has a heart of gold and puts everyone else before himself. I feel it's unfortunate that he had to spend most of his life someplace where he clearly does not belong. If he had the right people backing him, he would have been proven innocent like anyone who knows him knows that he is. I would see him when we were growing up, protecting anyone who needed it, not caring about his own safety. I feel the justice system was looking for an easy target, and unfortunately, like many times before in our past, my cousin Tony was it. Just talk to him for a moment, take a moment, look in his eyes. You will see a soul of a great man, not a killer. I would trust him with the life of my children sincerely his loving cousin Jacqueline Spaulding I mean she just pretty much sums up the entire story right there and I want to say something I don't know if this is the best place but when this happened I was not living in Portland actually might have been living here at the time of the the murder but I was not at the time of the trial, but as I was rereading the articles about him, it struck me as very improbable that a 16-year-old boy would, it's not improbable that a 16-year-old boy would, in a fit of passion, kill his girlfriend. That's happened many, many times, but the way she was killed and the way she was disemboweled and the whole thing, it does not sound like that type of crime and that is the way the crime was characterized as a crime of passion and one of the articles in the press herald i want to so tony sanborn's attorney amy fairfield she contacted an fbi profiler to get an opinion just about uh, the facts of the crime itself who would have committed this kind of crime and he reviewed it and he's going to submit a written opinion at the new trial oh i'm looking forward to that Um, the profile's name is john philpin he said in a phone interview that Sanborn, at sixteen, was too young and too inexperienced to have killed Briggs, whose remains showed signs of deliberate brutal- brutality that exceeded the crime of passion described by the prosecutors philpin this is i 'm quoting from this press herald article of ap- mm, oh, april april eleventh okay so Philpin said that many perpetrators of so called one off killings will snap to their senses the moment they see the damage they've inflicted on another human being. That's not what happened here, Philpin said. It wasn't a one-off kind of deal. Oh, my God, what have I done? There's a much larger dimension, terrorizing, humiliating, and destroying. The focus on the street kids to the exclusion of all, uh, and I'm still quoting here, this focus on the street kids to the exclusion of other possible suspects was an immediate red flag to Philpin, who also reviewed trial transcripts, investigation records, and documents filed in the case. At the time of Briggs' murder, the main state pier was partially occupied by a Bath Ironworks dry dock. Naval ships docked regularly, with sailors staying aboard the ships or in nearby barracks. Philpin said he found no records that indicate police checked the background of sailors who may have had shore not that night. Another avenue of investigation could have been the BIW, Bath Ironworks, workers themselves. A second shift of BIW employees got off work about 12.10 a.m., May 24th, around the time Briggs was seen walking toward the pier with an unidentified young man. Philpins also said the police did not endeavor to reconstruct what he described as the choreography of the crime, an attempt to recreate how Briggs and her killer moved through the crime scene, leaving behind the trail of clues that investigators found the next morning. In a functional and well-run investigation, detectives are chasing all manner of angles at once. You start with your evidence, you start with your crime reconstruction and said you do not start with a theory and this is another area of compromise for this investigation they focused their investigation on a small group of street kids they figured they would get anything they needed to know from those street kids and to me that was a terrible mistake and i have to say that i agree with him a hundred percent yeah so your point about that kind of dovetails into one of my big issues with this whole thing and that's the police attitude toward these kids in general. I feel like the police had attitudes not, they may sound contradictory, but not so much. They saw the kids as problems and pains in the ass. Mm -hmm. They saw them as troublemakers. They saw them though as easily manipulated, and that you know we know that police who have been doing this for a long time know how to get criminals, adult criminals, to give up the goods and talk about shit. And it must have been a really fun cat and mouse thing like for these cops can- to to manipulate these kids into doing what they want. I know like Jerry Rossi wasn't a kid and they played much harder ball with him. I Hope Katie it seems like seems like they just intimidated her. Yes. And and, I would... I, and it sounds like they did some good cop bad cop stuff yes. with her, which I'm sure works very well on a young. But young if somebody person. so when you volunteer at the youth center, it was only a couple of years after this and I would say the atmosphere was still Well, I want to you say, say about the talk about the youth center. center. Well, the youth first center. Of all, I used to be a volunteer like 93 to about 95 or 6 and then I started working full time i couldn't keep doing it but they used to call us was mentors and i was obviously assigned to the um girls i want to talk about the youth center first of all what it used to be like it's called long creek youth development center some bullshit now and it's a different building we can post a picture of the original building online but the original premise of the Youth Center, and it wasn't called the Youth Center, it was something like the Maine Boys Farm or something like that, was never supposed to have fences. The guy that set it up, and I I looked online to try to find the history of it. I could not find it, so maybe we will before our next time and I can fill you in but I do know from when I was a, when I was a volunteer there they went through it with us because at the time in the early 90s it still had no fences and the person who was interviewing me because you, it was kind of like a job interview Well you interview. think of the early 90s I mean this murder happened in May 1989 yeah. so the early 90s wasn't It wasn't much long it was after the same that. Era. The woman who was interviewing me filled me in on the youth center and the the philosophy back in the mid 1800s was that there wouldn't be fences because it was not a prison. It was a place for troubled young men because it was for men back then. There was a girls' place up in Hollowell, Maine, near Augusta. It's set up the same way. It's a bunch of buildings with no fence around it. It was supposed to be a place for them to live. They were to learn trades and learn. They had a farm, like they used to at the Augusta Mental Health Institute, too. They had a farm. They would learn, and and they would try to be rehabilitated. Uh, When I went there when i was a when I was there, they had places called cottages it was a it was like a campus. The cottages were these run down buildings they have some older ones that the original building is a very interesting looking kind of octagonal building with these turrets on it. They have these brick buildings around it that are also from the late eighteen hundreds that are like look like houses and they had newer buildings that were was what where the girls were in some of the newer they were in very bad condition. When I um, used to volunteer there, and they've since, uh, the newer ones have since been torn down. The uh, brick original ones have been used. I'm not sure exactly what they're being used for, probably state offices, because that's what a lot of stuff has been done. But I used to go there, and I would, my job was just to go there and spend an hour with the, one of the girls. I was assigned, I actually had two girls for a while because I had been assigned to a girl named Melissa, and she was 14, pregnant. Her boyfriend, air quotes, was 33 or something, a friend of her father's. And that was the case with a lot of these girls. Uh Uh-huh. The other girl, I can't remember her name, but she also had a boyfriend in his late 20s, and they... What is wrong with those guys? They were both in there because they were in the foster care program. They both ran away from foster homes all the time, and they wanted to live back at home with their mother or they lived on the streets. They were in a lot of different foster homes, and both of them had been sexually abused in these homes. Not all, and I'm not saying that about all foster homes because there are a lot of very, very good foster homes and the people who are take on these children? Some of them are wonderful people and really help their kids. But there's there's so many people that take advantage of children. Now including I can't remember what my cats, point was. The Her, fences. Yeah, the, the setup of the youth center when it was first conceived was there wasn't a need for fences because they weren't it wasn't a prison. They were trying to rehabilitate kids. And I think that the whole thing when Michael Chitwood, he was the police chief of Portland. I noticed you were careful not to say Chitwood. I know. He was the police chief in Portland, late 80s to, he was probably here for uh, 10 years or so. And uh, there was uh, quite a difference, I thought in the attitude of, of some of the police when he was here. He Better came or, or worse? Worse. He came from Philadelphia. He bit bitched about there being no fence. And said that that these kids are just coming back and going on the streets, which maybe they were, but maybe if there well, were... oh yeah, they were. But the, if there were some kind of structure in <laughs> place know. to help them... I know. ...instead of trying to punish them, because punishing them clearly wasn't working. And when I was there, one of the things that really, really upset me, and still does, and it's still going on, is they have a solitary confinement thing there that they put kids in all the time, and solitary confinement to me is torture, and I really don't see why any child should it's be in for solitary confinement. It's torture for adults. It, but you think kids they're still developing, and almost all these kids i 'm sure have uh, emotional and mental issues and, and there were gonna... some kids in there that were in there for violent crime i 'm not i 'm not sugarcoating it there were There were rapists in there there was a girl that had killed her grandmother and stabbed her a hundred times. Ugh. Um, she got out when she was 18 because she went in when she was, like, 12. But it's all but connected. It's like you can't just ignore them the first half of their lives, throw them in a, basically a prison. No, I, and I digress. No, you're not digressing at all because this l- leads to this atmosphere. Like, the Portland Press-Herald, I mean, the main Sunday-Telegram today had an article about how you know, this big front page feature story on, you know, the street kids of the, this, of, of the, late Briggs, 80, yeah, <coughs> Sanborn era. I felt it was kind of superficial and that it talked about just this culture of these kids hanging out and, and, you know, there were being less restrictions on the kids and the kids leaving the youth center when they should have been there and that type of thing. But it doesn't really talk about, what these problems were and my, why these problems were, what the roots of these things are. And I think a lot of it's attitude. And one of the things that really struck me reading through the, the bail motion is the disposable lives yeah. that that the police obviously felt these kids had. And I'm not, even, I'm not just talking about the kids who were close to this murder who were treated with such manipulation and disrespect, but I'm even talking about the girls in the Jerry Rossi situation. These girls, who are 13 and 14, who are taken by two adult men to an Augusta Hotel, gotten drunk to the point where they couldn't remember what they did and raped. And then the cop brings the girl in to the police station, shows her photos yeah, that those guys took. Yeah, didn't. she said she didn't remember any she of that. She didn't remember it. They showed her photos of it. She was very upset. She didn't really give them what they wanted. But she did want to press charges, and he said, well, you'll have to go up to Augusta to do that. They couldn't have cared less about these girls. Well, you know, it kind well, of, let me read something from this. In the in Crystal Breen, one of the girls, who's now a woman, and I say girl, she was 13 or 14 at the time, um, was interviewed in June 2016 by Sanborn's defense team. And she told investigators for the defense team that she had been summoned to the police station back then in 19... 19- 90 or whenever it was, by Young and Daniels, the two cops investigating the case, and was shown the photographs depicting her in bed with Rossi in sexual positions. And both of them were naked. She had originally told police that when she went into the hotel room, she had her clothes on. When she woke up, she had her clothes on and didn't remember doing anything. She indicated that the pictures were too hard for her to look at because although she was fairly certain Rossi did something to her in the hotel room in Augusta, she was not certain. She told the detectives that she wished to press charges against Rossi, to which Young told her that the conduct happened out of his jurisdiction and any complaints would have to be made through the Augusta Police Department. Breen said she asked her mother to help her with this, and I think I mentioned, mentioned this earlier, and her mother told her, and this is so main, that they did not have the gas money to get to Augusta. And I'm not saying her mother was any saint either. The girl wouldn't have been in this situation if her, you yeah. know, if she lived in a stable home. But the motion points out it should also be noticed, noted that nowhere in Detective Young's report does he record Breen's age, but rather referred to Breen as a young woman in his report. And I don't think that was out of any respect for Crystal. I think it was to hide the fact that, that he was talking to a man who had raped, and not only statutory raped, although that's rape, but gotten drunk and raped a 13-year-old girl, and the cops were going to use that against him, to force him to testify that he you know, to implicate Tony Samborne. Yeah, so they didn't care no, and and they they didn't give a shit about the girl. He could he could say it's not my jurisdiction. But I'm sure that if he really wanted to help her out he could have contacted the Augusta police. Well, anything. and and what day and age does a cop talk to a thirteen-year-old girl who was raped by an adult man and not fucking do something about it? And also, you know what it is? It, it kind of ties into the to this the uh, show we did on Logan Marr about how the the, the DHS. Yes. Not all. I don't want to pay everyone. With We're the only same talking brush. about the bad ones, not the good ones. But some people they think of these kids as. Less than them or street kids or... And maybe they were burned out cops. I don't know. But to me, it's like, a, you know screw her she's just a freaking street kid or she's just a little (laughs) slut that decided to go with this guy and get drunk so it's her own fault and not even giving a shit because she was just a tool for him to use against this guy to get what he wanted right another 13 year old girl was hope katie and hope katie was really really i wanted to say something about her because we didn't talk about it but it is mentioned She was in the youth center. And one of the things when I was a mentor that they, we had rules about what we could talk about with the kids. And one of the things they were, we were told to shut down as soon as they started, because they did this all the time being kids, was when they started to tell war stories and brag about stuff, we were supposed to tell them, I don't want to hear that. Right, brag about being and involved they would in crimes. Up. Yeah, and they would they would tell me they were going to escape all the time. Mm-hmm. Which I every time they told me that, I said, you know, I'm supposed to report you. And, and so then they but they would lie about shit. And sh- I'm sure she was trying. And to don't th- tell me the cops who dealt with these kids a lot, weren't aware of this dynamic. Well, I wonder if we found out that she had been being badgered by them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just wondering if she had been bragging around to people, oh, yeah, I saw it, because when you're in prison, whether you're a kid or an adult, you have to make yourself look tough, and you will make stuff up. And also, she was a 13-year-old girl. They're desperate for attention anyway. And I'm sure she was more desperate. She wouldn't for attention. be the first to but, make a, a story. But up. At one point, she and this was in 1991. She told her caseworker Margaret Bragdon that she had seen Tony at Saco Beach, and he had looked at her in a way that really scared her. And and her caseworker wrote in her notes and then asked the cops, "Is crystal uh, Not Crystal. Is, is Hope safe?" And the cops were like, Tony has been in prison for months and months and months. She didn't see Tony. And so this should have it raised a lot of flags for everybody. First of all, Hope makes up stories. Or she can't see worth shit. And also, she can't <laughs> see worth shit enough to... She either mistook somebody for Tony, or I, my theory when I read that was she wanted, she wanted to make up a dramatic yeah. story. And here's a dramatic story that makes her... Somebody who's scared of something and gets her, you know, some nice positive caring attention. And I'm not even criticizing that. These kids needed to feel they had people no, cared. You know, I want to say, I want to share something that really got to me when I was there as when I was a volunteer. And even though it's kind of corny, is one of the things that we volunteered to do was make birthday cake for the inmates. Some of them had never in their lives, had a birthday cake or a birthday party, ever. And we would, like, pick names. And, you know, they would just randomly give you somebody. It wasn't like I made them for just the girls in my cottage. Um, One of them I made was for for a kid that was, like, 16. And one of the other volunteers told me that, When she gave him the cake, he started crying because he had never had a birthday cake. Now, that is sad. It is sad. And that's the kind of lives. I mean, there was the uh, one of my girls was showing me pictures. She had some photographs of her. Someone had given her when she was she was like a toddler or something. So she's showing me these pictures of herself as a toddler because she was wanted to show them to me not to say look how horrible my life was but like oh look here's a picture of me when I was a baby and I'm like oh nice I'm looking at it and the the house she was in was I mean it was disgusting the surroundings of this baby sitting there in this like squalor you just you don't understand what their lives are like and I'm not saying it's any I'm saying the police could have approached this in a totally different way well it's just like we were saying before Then they're not treating them like human beings no they're not and also just the fact what I said to you before before we were recording what I do not understand is how a 13-year-old girl can be in an interview room with two cops without anyone there to even some like a court appointed you know now they have um, and these interviews weren't recorded yeah they weren't recorded but they they have people now like and Guardian, like guardian, guardian Adlina yeah and, like, like Simon Baker in that TV show oh he, is that what he was yeah. well no I, I used a friend of mine his wife used to do that she had been an attorney and she, she right, retired but like, she used to do that court appointed guardians Basically, to help to advocate. help advocate for kids in the legal system but even just anybody In there, sitting next to her, I mean, her social worker did say she was surprised that no one ever called her. But why is she? Is it because she was a ward of the state that they were able to do that? It's not fair. I don't know, but some of these kids, I wonder how often Tony Sanborn's parents, who were very much around. ...were ever in any of the interviews that he was subjected to. It's just like in that make, uh, Making and, uh, a Murderer one where that poor kid was I in know. Oh, my God. And one thing that's, and maybe it's the wrong point to say this, I just want to point out, you know, people can be very cynical. I, I think there's a lot of people who think if somebody's convicted of a crime that they probably deserved it and they should be in prison, and there's a lot of ways to to for people to point at Tony Sanborn in his young life and say, well, why is he getting out? But just like Stephen Avery and Making of Murder, even if he did do it, justice wasn't served. The trial was a farce. The 104-page document that Amy Fairfield, the lawyer, and her team spent a year putting together... It shows, I mean, it's not just one thing or another. It's funny because Pam Ames, the assistant AG, who's really on the hot seat because of this, says, well, even if Hope Katie retracted, which in a very dramatic moment she retracted her thing and court in April, there's all this other evidence against him. And you look, and there is not, there's not one iota of physical evidence against this kid. It's entirely based on these coerced, manipulated, so-called confessions from these kids who who the who and well jerry rossi again not a kid but who his choice was be convicted of rape and go to prison or testify that tony sanborn said he was going to kill Jessica and, and his and tony sanborn regardless of his innocence or guilt his constitutional rights were violated many times and whether you are guilty or innocent You have a right to be represented. The prosecutor and the defense attorneys have to follow every single rule or everything is tainted. You know, I'm sorry if it's inconvenient to you that, you know, some evidence doesn't line up, but that's the way it is. And if someone who's guilty gets off because of it, I'm sorry, but it's not. It protects all of us. It does. I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche, and it sounds like there are people out there who are going to say, yeah, you're saying it, but I'm never going to get arrested for anything. You never know. You never know. You never know. And Fairfield points out in her memorandum that an injustice was done to Jessica Briggs, whose killer has probably never been found. And God knows if he did that to her, he may have done it to other people. Yeah that a huge injustice was done to tony sanborn who has spent 27 years of his His whole life 44 year life in prison and you know a year and a half even before he was convicted he was in prison but she also points out that an injustice was done to the people of maine because we depend on the people even if it's not about who you pay your taxes you know that that our taxes go to this government system, but just we depend on our justice system to do its job right and to not pluck people out of thin air and make them guilty of a crime and not only wasting money, but wasting lives. And also, in a more, to me, and this isn't in her motion, but it's, you know, in a more philosophical sense, every single fucking time this happens, it makes it harder for people who are on the fringes of society to be taken seriously to be treated fairly to have to have lives that are productive and benefit others what a what a society we would live in if instead of people being marginalized And generalized and and just assumed to be guilty because of the lives they lead. We lived in a society where we tried to attack the roots of that and to find the guilty people. You know, this is the other side of the coin of Michael Skakel, Martha Moxley. Tony Sanborn was immediately, because of who he was consider guilty of this crime, and because the police didn't have enough imagination and creativity to figure uh, out who FBI might have really profile. done this. And they're lazy. They and didn't they're lazy. Look, You know, and And, you know, on the other hand, you had Skakel, who obviously was involved from day one and nobody because you know, same age as Tony Sanborn but because he was from a rich, powerful family, uh, nobody could believe he was. And the other thing about Tony Sanborn that we didn't talk about was he did have an alibi. He went to he was actually at his parents' house that night. He went to bed around nine thirty his dad didn't see him until 8.30 in the morning, or and, either that or he went to bed at and 8.30. And the nature of the house they lived in was that he was up on the third floor, yeah. and he couldn't have easily left the house without somebody else knowing. And it said under testimony, his father said it was possible that he could have slipped out, even though he didn't have a key, he could have left the door unlocked. But yeah, it's possible. Anything's possible. But did you hear him leave? Did you? He was there in the morning? Yeah. He was there at night? And they never found any blood on his clothes. They never found a murder weapon, which is probably in Castaway. Oh, and there was another thing. But but I just want to say with Tony Sanborn, there was no... Physical evidence linking him to the crime. There was also no anecdotal evidence about his behavior the next day. About, from his parents, that he had acted differently or that they found or bloody, clothes, bloody clothes. Which, or, the, obviously, the murderer would have had. Or... Oh, the other thing I was going to say is there was one other eyewitness testimony that they talked about. A bath ironworks worker who saw a young man talking to, to Jessica. The kid on the bicycle. Yes. I brought that up. But he didn't identify him as Tony, but then later they they, they forced kind of, him to they identify kind of, him as Tony. Yeah. They kinda of got him to do it. It's just it's very disturbing. So um there was a a Bath Ironworks worker who said he saw a boy on a bicycle with Briggs. hmm okay. Um walking toward going toward the pier. And I can't find much on that. But one thing I one thing I did find interest interesting was this Dave Schwartz, who is apparently another street person, or at least someone who just hangs out outside a lot, and he was interviewed multiple times beginning May 28, 1989, four days after her body was found, and he told detectives he was on the waterfront the night she was murdered and said he wo- he had been sleeping on a bench near the waterfront in front of the Casco Bay Lines with the, the um, ferry boats. And he heard someone scream. He heard the crack of something like a 2x4 hitting a surface, heard a splash, and then saw a man walking away from the area where he heard the noises. In the next several days and weeks, and this is actually a footnote in the motion, in the next several days and weeks, Detectives Daniels and Burton conducted multiple interviews of Schwartz where he gave further detail and, according to the detectives, gave some differing details from previous interviews. (laughs) <laughs> on at least two occasions the detectives took him from the main youth center where apparently he was staying too because who wasn't to the waterfront for the interviews he also worked with somebody from the main college of art where you went to school nah, not that who drew a composite of the man he saw from approximately 30 feet away <laughs> that night despite interviews beginning days after the murder um the defense only got all of the reports on this on anything relating to Dave Schwartz on or about May fifteenth, nineteen ninety two, and that was shortly before the trial was to begin. So that's another thing and and apparently nothing not much was ever done with that. And since it didn't fit their Tony Samborn scenario it didn't, doesn't seem to have gone, gone far, but that's yet another thing they withheld well, the, from the defense. The it's like they withheld every fucking I thing from the is defense. In, I think it's in this motion for bail, too, because I, I, I think I just read it last night when I was reading this. was There was one Bath Ironworks worker who came forward and said he saw a young man or her talking to a young man or her with a young man. One... But they told, I believe they told Tony that hundreds yes, of bath yes, iron it workers there. Yes. had seen him yes. with her. Yes. What happened Trying was to they told him. him they told him that they had talked to dozens and dozens of bath iron work, workers who had seen her with him with her that night. But they had only actually talked to six or seven. Bath and onwards. only one said he saw her. He saw a young man with a bicycle. And and is as he the one that saw the Oh, yeah. He's the one that saw and the, and the as bicycle. And as we said earlier, nobody had said Tony was, had a bicycle in those days walking with her towards the pier. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in there about this group of kids, different kids in the group, some of the ones involved in this, and other ones going from Kennedy Park to Peppermint Park, yes, to and the so we're meeting gonna, up with different people we walking around. We're going to do a video. We walking are. We're going to do a video walking tour. All the important points in this story. Although I don't think it's going to be a CD anymore, but there's unfortunately, some, it's not. There are but still some CDs. Since parts. we have to do it in the evening because of our schedules, maybe there will be some drunk college guys like being obnoxious. No, they will probably be homeless. There's still homeless. Oxford Street. There will the be homeless. some panhandlers. Well, so There'll be some tourists. Tony Sanborn's parents lived on Oxford Street, which is not a good area. Well, just and that's let me where say, fun. I hope it's nice weather. <laughs> but it's but that it's just another example. It's funny because this is around the same time of year. Almost. It is around the same time yeah. of year, so it'll be. But these kids were wandering around. Oh, I I can't finish what I wanted to say about the cops. So oh, okay, and that is, <laughs> I, I, hope we I get I've always over. been I've always been bothered, and people love this on police shows and stuff, but it it gets on my nerves about the way police even with adults, manipulate and lie, and I know they're allowed to and they think they're clever and all this shit, and force people, in a lot of cases vulnerable people or people who are in shock or people with issues, to say things they don't want to say or get them to believe things they don't want to believe, lie to them until the person thinks they're going nuts. I mean, we saw this with Ken Littleton and the Moxley yeah, thing. Yeah, so thinking of that, We've yep. seen this. Instead of doing what they do like in Britain and places like that where the person gives a statement, they get out of the person, what the person saw or did or whatever, and then they ask questions, lots of times the same questions in different ways to try to find inconsistencies and trip the person up. And frankly, I think that's a much more efficient investigative tool than... Then trying to out-clever somebody and manipulate them into stuff that... Tell me these guys didn't know Hope Katie was lying. They badgered her for a year and a half until she finally said what they wanted her to say or they finally at least formed a statement that said what she... And how can you even trust a young, a young girl who first of all has very poor vision and bad hearing has emotional problems might have some some mental def- uh, deficiencies how can how can anyone even trust it's what she saw very cynical says? of them to use that as and pam Ames, and, and the they keystone. were talking themselves into the fact that she saw it well she di- she didn't pr- it was the keystone it. to the to the state's case and you know the motion for bail lays out a great case for all this being just bullshit. But Amy Fairfield's very good point about the whole thing is most of this was not presented to the defense, and by law, by our Constitution, it's supposed to. That's what a Brady violation is. Matt got all worked up when he was talking about it with us. And if the prosecution has evidence, it has to be shared as soon as possible with the defense. It's not a game. It's a person's life, and when it's a murder trial... It's the defendant's life, as well as the person who died. For the person who died, the truth deserves to come out. and the and and part of the motion for bail and Fairfield's request that the case be dismissed is that this goes beyond you know the kind of oversights or accidents that happen in the course of a trial or long investigations, but it was deliberate. And overwhelming on the part of the state. the And, miscon- they, and, like, and so it, it amounts to misconduct by yeah. Ames and by the police. It is misconduct. The fact that they said that that interview with Jerry Rossi from Florida, the, that they didn't give it to the defense, that was just a good faith oversight or yeah. something. Bullshit. Bullshit. And I wanted to ask Matt about that because I thought it didn't matter if it was a Brady violation, whether you, whether it was by accident. It's yeah, like you ignorance of the law is no yeah, excuse. Yeah, if you me. accidentally, like... Kill somebody or something. Right. It's like it reminds me of the old Saturday Night Live with Steve Martin. I didn't know murder was a crime. <laughs> <laughs> but well, let's talk about the post-it notes on the statements. Yeah, there's there are two post-it notes in the document. There are the statements that Detective Young, I think, reports, yeah. typed up based on. The interviews, there are no. They had no transcripts of the interviews as evidence. But there are two post-it notes. So one of the post-it notes, and mm-hmm. these are stuck right on, on, Christina on Christina Sprague, and she was, she was a friend. They do have it without the post-it note here, right? She was one of she the. She was a friend of. Um, she was a friend of Jessica's. I she's think. yeah. She's one of the ones who who's. She said she saw scratches on Tony Sanborn's yes, face yes. after it was another a vague street kid. Uh, it says, circums- and, and so the, this post-it note says, "Statements not sent as discovery per request of Detective Young." And and it says Christine Sprague, Glenn Brown, and Dottie Gammon. And Dottie Gammon was the girlfriend of either Glenn Brown or one of the other guys that people were one of the guys who was interviewed and yeah. i think she was they're, Glenn Brown's all, girlfriend all but are... but the, those three things and then it's <laughs> and then it, there's a little like arrow and it says as becky just said statements not sent as discovery per request of detective young and there's a post-it over it that says to be changed to narrative report so they took the transcripts and changed them to a nice narrative and when a detective or any person takes a transcript and boils it down you're going to get that person's perspective especially when the person has a stake in the game when they want to portray a certain point of view it's just really disturbing well like you can't just pick and choose what you give to the defense no, you can't. That's a Brady violation. <laughs> I mean, how is that okay? And the fact that they have this post-it note, and it's, I mean, that post-it note is just, it's right there in black and white that they don't intend to give this to the, you know. I'm going to, you know, put it in my own words and then give it to them. No, you can't do that. Right. Like, I i mean, how is that okay? I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's just, ugh. I don't know. Anyways, so, this case, we're going to have to do B- update on it. When are they going to have that trial that, in the, May? A date hasn't been set for the trial, and like I said, I think the judge is deciding whether there is even going to be one. She may just dismiss the charges. Is it going to be the same judge, Joyce Wheeler? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll keep you guys updated, because I, I find this case interesting not only because of what it says about the justice system and stuff, but I feel it's one of those real main slice of life. Not that it can't have it happen anywhere, but when you see the photos... And you read that document and it's the kids, you know, and they're hanging out in Kennedy Park and they're hanging out in Peppermint Park and they're mm-hmm. walking around the old poor and going to each other's houses. And you can just picture it. You know, you can just picture yeah. them. You can just picture. And it's um, and I was going to say, like, I moved to Bangor in about 1991. I came back in the summer of 1993. So I kind of missed it. But I lived up on Montjoy Hill, which is close to Peppermint Park. Is at the base of Munjoy Hill, um, which is a, a section of Portland. It's now a little gentrified. Oh, but it's yeah. A, it was where all the um, Irish and Italians. There's still a lot of Irish and Italian families up there. But it, it was all the factory work, dock workers, factory workers. And people lived up there. There was a Nissan Bakery up there. It was a working class neighborhood up there. Yes. There were some pretty houses up there. It had been farmland up until the late eighteen hundreds, and then it was populated with houses but it was there was a lot of triple deckers and and it was fairly seedy up until maybe the last twenty years. Yep. You- it was a beautiful. I loved living up there. I lived there in the mid '80s, nice. and then I through the uh, early '90s. So I used to walk. I didn't have a car until 1990, so I walked everywhere. I probably walked by these kids all the time. There were kids always hanging out. I was older than them, about 10 years older, mm-hmm. so I didn't. That didn't stop Carrie like Rossi. <laughs> I know, but I mean, I probably saw them. I mean, yeah? it, oh, yeah. they're sketchy people all over the place, not the kids, but other people. I mean, and I had to walk through those neighborhoods. You know what? There's no really bad neighborhoods in Portland no. no matter what anyone says, it's a small city. The city itself is probably like sixty thousand people. Oh. Um, but you know, there are poor neighborhoods. There are poor and there are neighborhoods. neighborhoods where bad things happen, or but, are more likely yeah. to happen. And when we, but had- I've never felt unsafe walking anywhere i used to to walk at night all the time because i didn't have a car i work at the mall there i would have to take the last bus if i closed i worked in a store there was a bus that came at 9 30 or 10 i can't remember and it went to the end of the line which was downtown so to walk from downtown portland up to my house on monjoy hill which was probably about half a mile to a mile it wasn't very it's not a very long walk but it was at night at 10 or 11 at night I used to do that all the time, or sometimes I'd take the bus and I'd have to get off on Mellon Street, which was quite a ways down near the Deering Oaks Park, which, and that's not a very nice neighborhood at night either. And I would either walk up to Montreal Hill or take a cab. I didn't always have money for a cab, and I was never really afraid. Maybe I should have been, but I didn't. Well, I figured this I, way, I didn't have a choice. I had to. I had to get home. I mean, that's so I had. I to don't walk. know that I would have hung around the pier. <laughs> Late at night, no, especially with no. You know, there's places down there now. It's um a fairly even now. It's not. It's not safe. Right. It's not safe because there's a lot of dark nooks and crannies. It's and, yeah. and it'll be in our video. But there's. I mean, but it's also there's a much more vibrant nightlife down there than there used to be. You know, but even then there nice was bars. in the late eighties. But I I've talked to people, old timers from Portland, that uh, you know, like people who are in their eighties that lived here their whole lives. And that waterfront now it's the old port and it's a you know tourist attraction. It's cute and it's quaint and all this stuff. In the 70s, probably most of the time, I mean up until the 70s, 1970s, it wasn't a safe place to be. There was fishermen and and their boats and stuff. It was a working Waterfront yep. and working hard. There were a lot of second and third shift and operations. People coming and going. The the Navy. You have, you right. have people. Navy men and yeah, and you have transient workforce or people coming and going. Bad things can happen. People are drinking. And also, you and had browsing. The, the Greyhound station was within walking distance. So. People could get off a bus and walk oh, yeah, down. Yeah, that's true. We know from previous episodes how creepy people like to take buses. I had... But I think this is a classic case of. How and I'll I'll just give a little benefit of doubt. Prosecutors and police, desperate to solve a crime, well, they get a lot can, of pressure. Can right, and they're under a lot of pressure from the public and from from above. I'm sure it's just like any other job. Your boss is telling you to do something that but, you know is probably not possible, but they're nagging you, and it's like. It's much easier to nail one of the street kids mm-hmm. down there than it is to find a possible transient. Not, I don't want to say serial killer because we don't know if there were any similar. Although it'd be well, interesting for us to brutal. see. But I mean, was but somebody who brutal was beyond the pale as far as you know. It wasn't, it wasn't just like her it, boyfriend. She wasn't just her stabbed, her right, in the water Or hit over the head with she a rock. She was tortured. One of the documents we read said she had, she the had just def- uh, not just defensive wounds, but she had some. Superficial wounds that look like she had been tortured prior to being killed. Yes. Like the kind of stab and maybe wounds it was that the FBI profiler guy. The kind of stab wounds that don't kill you, but somebody's poking at you with yeah. the knife. You know? And, and if granted a ma- an angry young man could do that. I'm not saying that. But I feel like the slit throat disembowelment. I feel like that kind of murder it get it comes with and I'm not an FBI profiler, obviously. I just play one on the podcast. Get, it shows kind of a level of confidence yeah. that if it's a if it's a killing of passion or it's a 16-year-old kid or something, they're not going to have confidence that I'm going to be able to do this. Take little time. She was lying prone. They could yeah. tell from the blood and wow. her injuries. Somebody was on top of her doing this to her, and it shows a level of confidence in what you're doing and how much time you have and what yeah. you can get away with. And then they dragged her. There were blood drag marks. I think I left that part out to a gap in the pier and yeah. pulled her in the water. You think of killing a passion you just leave the body there. Maybe you would have brought her over to the edge, you know, stabbed her and shoved her. You right. wouldn't have you wouldn't have tortured her and done all this stuff. I mean, you know, and and Tony Sanborn was outside kind in the where everybody. I mean, there's other places right. that would be right. that, especially a street kid, would know that would be private, more private. Right. He isn't going to go the dock. I mean, say, say he wanted to lure her somewhere and kill her. He's going to say, Jesse, let's go down to the main state pier and do this. It's let's go behind those bushes and or say, even a place like the park. Right. Um, or a playground, I dated somebody around that time, and we used to go, there was a playground, you know, up near the Eastern Promenade that we used to go hang out to kiss and stuff, and, you know, they have the, the I don't want to say jungle gym, but, you know, like one of those wooden play structures right. or something like that. I mean, you go somewhere for privacy. Right. You're not going to go hang out at the friggin' Main State Pier, but if you're a girl walking down the street and some Nice looking. uh, She was probably walking home from DeMillo's. Yeah, and someone says, hey, you know. What you doing? And or he a may nice have just got, or, or he may have, have grabbed just her. yeah or maybe he said you know do you have a cigarette because her cigarettes were found on or he, oh and starts talking to her let's go over here and take a smoke you know yeah. oh look at the moon isn't it beautiful on the pier blah I blah mean, blah you know he could have been I mean if he's someone like I hate to jump to the conclusion but but let's just say for purposes of what I'm going to say that he was some kind of serial killer like someone like Ted Bundy who seems really nice guy you know oh hey you know blah 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 uh, you know. Do you have a cigarette? Let's go. Oh, you know, and as a, and as a main street kid in the 90s, I mean, all this implies a certain level of savviness. Like that Portland, uh, like the main Sunday Telegram Today story made them sound like these savvy kids. They're main kids. And let's face it, they live in an environment that's dangerous in a lot of ways. It's dangerous to your health, it's dangerous to your well being, it's dangerous as far as you being sexually assaulted or abused in a lot of ways. But those are all by people you know for the most part. And yes, yes. Maine it's is I mean you know. I mean, it's not people are a little more reserved. They're not overly friendly like some parts of the country, but it's a fairly safe and friendly place. People you don't know wave well, to like you. We said, if there, you're walking there down, there were only the street. sixteen murders last year. Yeah. We said that and then we saw Janet Mills, our attorney Janet yeah. speak yesterday. And you know, this may be a good time to segue into our recommendations. Yes. And we're going to recommend Crime Wave, yeah. even though it's over. It's over, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's we a, went to it. in April. First, I want to say they didn't have it last year. And Crime Wave is a one-day conference in Maine. This was the third year they had it. And it brings together mystery writers, most of them from Maine, some from out of state, for a day long conference for fans of mystery, for fans of writing, and it's a lot of fun. We, and Crime Writers, true. Any and kind crime, of writers, crime Writers, it's put actually. On, yep. It's put on by the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance in conjunction with the Maine Crime Writers, which is kind of a loose organization. We blog at com, and we're all members of the MWPA, so it's. But, but we didn't have it last year because enough people didn't sign I up. I know. This year, it was a little close, but enough people did sign up. I think if more people realized what it was like. It's fun. I And I'm not a writer, but I have a good time. This year, you get was, you get coffee and pastries in the morning. There's You have the option of signing up for lunch, which yeah, is... Which I did, because it was... I mean, it, it's good. Yeah, they have cold cups. Co- it costs $175. Not the lunch. But you got um, Friday night... They gave the first Maine Crime Master Award to Tess Gerritsen, who writes the books that the Rizzoli and Isles TV show is based yes. on and some other cool stuff, and just made a main horror movie, all in Maine, with yes. her son, which we're going to have to... called Island Zero. If I wasn't busy next Saturday, we could go to Lewiston and see the screening of that. Yes, because I asked the assistant director was there with... Tess. Tess Gerritsen lives in Maine. She lives in Camden. Her son, adult son, is a... Josh. He's a a documentary filmmaker. And she wanted to do a horror movie. Now, she had been... um, When she started her career... Tess Garrison was a romance writer, which I've never read any of her romances. And she was a doctor before that. And she was a doctor. The first book I read of hers was Harvest, which was a medical thriller about organs. They were making them in labs or they were what they were doing was making them in women like they were using women's uteruses to make these organs which It uh, was, so was kind of gross. Uh, um, and she did a couple of those, and then she started the mystery ones that ended up being the Rizzoli and Isles um series. But she's a she's a an entertaining and Gravity was a very good book, speaker. which apparently we'll have to do a whole show on that lawsuit. I I don't know if it's a lawsuit. I know. Yes, we them. were talking about it last night at the holiday. Oh, you were yes. because I remember when that movie came out, what? which I never saw, what? and I thought, I wonder if what? that's based on what Kate's happened. Book, and and the this is a name. What happened, and this is a very superficial overview of it because it's very complicated. Is the the film studio bought the rights to it when the book came out okay at some point the stu- nothing was done a lot of times when a book is option for a movie nothing ever happens they yeah, they're just yeah. find the option to make it into a movie the studio changed hands she even wrote an extra scene for it that wasn't in the book but eventually whatever happened, this happened in that heaven, blah blah blah. The movie came out, same name. Yes, it has the same, same storyline. The, the Sandra Bullock character wasn't a surgeon as the, in the protagonist book, yes. in the book was. But other than that, it was pretty much the same. She got her option, but what you usually get when your book is made into a movie is you get you get royalties and you get a when it actually gets made into a movie you get some big bonus or no something problem, too. And yeah. and she didn't get that stuff. And she rightly sued on the basis that it was her book that was made into the movie and they're saying no it wasn't it's just it it may seem like it but it's not at all changed hands the studio this is the studio's property now and i won't get into all the legalities and backs and forth but she's it's chilling for writers and stuff when you write something it's out there yeah it's out there but it's still your intellectual property or whoever has the rights to it and she had the rights to that, and it was taken, and millions and billions of dollars well, were made yeah. well, off I, of it. Well, it's funny, because I saw... And she did not benefit. I read a synopsis of it, and it sounded... It was weird, because it sounded, I thought, because of the title, oh, I wonder if it's... Been... And then I read the synopsis, and I'm like, it sounds kind of like it, but not exactly like it. So I think they changed enough so they, they, changed enough so they could try to claim that it wasn't, right. but yeah, whatever. Oh, anyway, whatever. It's like but, you know, if you plagiarize, say you take, you cut and paste four paragraphs of something that's not fair use, and you change the words to synonym to yeah. you know, to to the uh, you get a thesaurus yeah. and change some words, and you're still plagiarizing it. Yeah. The structure is the same, and so this is. But we digress. We're talking anyways, about crime wave. So she, so, so she so was Friday night, they, and she was and that was open to the public. The whole thing takes place at the University of Southern Maine's Glickman Library, which is right off Interstate 295. It's a, nice, it's a very comfortable place. Oh yes. There's parking, lots of parking. It's, um, the room it's in is Portland, very airy. And Portland's a great place to spend the night. And there's a lot of things to do. There's there, a lot to nice do. Restaurants. And just don't go on the pier in the dark. Well, <laughs> and With strange men. Or but, get drunk and go wandering on the pier for a very young college, young man. college And then on Saturday, it may seem like a long day, but there are panels. The first panel was with Tess and her agent, Meg Ruley. And the moderator was Katrina Nitas Holm, who is a mystery novel reviewer. And, and I'll give Tess Garrison a lot of credit. She mentioned Gravity a couple times. She never, ever, ever made any remarks, night or otherwise, about the lawsuit or the movie. They talked about how to get your books published, her path to publication, which 30 years ago was a lot different than... And they they talked to her agent as well, Tess's agent. I said Meg oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, you did. Never mind. So there were panels like that during the day, and then there, are also, there were also some breakout workshops. Yes. James Heyman, who's on his fifth thriller... And is on the was on the New York Times bestseller list. Did one on plot. Chris Holm, whose second Michael Hendricks came out. as a hitman who only kills other hitmen. Yes, I know his tagline the better. I need my own the tagline. The killing kind. And this What's one. What's the second one? I can't remember. I don't know. I wish you hadn't said that because now I need to know this. The I I know because he's, he's the it, killing but kind. But he did a workshop on how to set the scene. There were other workshops. I was on one. It was called, like, The Debutantes. Well, yours Um, was a panel. I was on a panel... It was called the Debutants because it was people who had recently published books. But the four of us were all on at least our second book, but we had not been published last time. Crime well, Wave. Well, that's itself. the thing, Crime Wave. What, since that missed a year, since that Misty year, you would have been debutantes. And on last that year. panel, and it was nice mix because it was Bruce it Coffin, was a good mix, yes. our good friend Bruce Coffin, a former Portland police detective. So hopefully he'll still be our not friend. one of the and who listens to our podcast. Not one of the detectives. If he had been one of the guys on, I think he would have done it. But I he, think he would have kick butt and found the right killer. Because that's Bruce, but it was him. It was Brendan Riley who writes international thrillers. Yeah, Dick Cass who writes kind of noir. I want yes. to I want to call him jazz mysteries. Jazz. Um, looks like it'll be good. And his his, his protagonist yeah. is kind of neat because he's an alcoholic who he uh, buys a recovering alcohol. alcoholic. He buys a right. bar or, That's falling up like a bar that's seen better days and we were moderated by barbara ross of the clam bake i know <laughs> and she said she's a fan of our podcast and she hadn't even heard the one where i plugged her book yeah, i know so that was i fun. that's why she said she that was a fun fan. and becky, becky said i did a good job on that panel. yes mm-hmm. i took some pictures thank you <laughs> yeah you know we can put a picture or two of that on our well we did have pictures oh, on, oh, no, our, oh, we, have it on uh, we have it on our facebook our page. facebook page which is crime and stuff and there are books for sale by Kelly's Books to Go, Barbara Kelly, who is an independent bookseller. Who yes. and I like giving her a plug because she is very good to me, and she's a, a nice fan of my city. books. And and she's so a, I, she's also the costumer for the Bitterford City Theater. I did not They're know doing that. The of Oz oh. This oh, so see the things you learn. But one of the nice things I like about Crime Wave. Is that everybody's right there? And if you want to hang out, meet with, your favorite author and, and, to, and sit next to your author and, and drink a cup of coffee and stand there and talk about stuff and look out the window at the beautiful view of Portland and it, yeah, you're they're right there. There were maybe hundred people yep. tops. It's a just a nice day of collegiality and, at and the writing. End they had this thing. They have this thing called two minutes in the slammer. Where anyone anyone can sign up and read two minutes worth of whatever they're writing. Then they vote on, they give them Yeah, there's prizes. a panel of judges. I think it was Bruce. And the two we like didn't win. Yeah, who was the, the panel of judges? Bruce Coffin, Kate Flora, and was it Barbara Ross? I think it was. And the winner won. They had a poster made of all these nice things people said about Tess Garrison. <laughs> yeah. And so the winner got a signed copy of that. Other the, authors said about it. The person who came in second got to pick out a book out of his choice a book of his yeah. or her choice from the table and but it was fun because you cuz anybody who went to the conference could have joined this and they get up there and it sounds intimidating but it's a very you I, it's it. a very positive crowd. I didn't do it this year. The first year we had it, the Friday night yes, before, you had it the Friday night. and I did it. And it's it's a little nerve wracking, even if you're a published author to read your work. And you know there are people up there reading their work, and Tess Gerritsen sitting in the. Audience. I know, I know. But they they all were good, and it's I think it's an empowering thing, and it's kind of a recognition that everybody who's a writer. Well, is I'll a writer. also say as a not as someone who's not a writer, I don't have any aspirations to be a writer but I like to read and I like a lot of authors it's also a lot of fun and I feel no no pressure or or uh, i feel nobody's saying oh what are you doing yeah here? it's fun or they don't say what are you doing here but uh, this, and also uh-huh. they don't say what are you working on oh when's your next book coming out and all that stuff i don't feel any of that kind of <laughs> you know uh-huh. what i mean though no. i mean i don't i, I feel right. very free it feels just like oh i'm and, here i'm just an observer and it's fun but and, it's so much fun and i know this is it's a year away but if you're in the if you'd love like to come to portland in the spring. Look for it next April or if you live in, in close and enough probably to probably be there. And we'll be there, definitely. But, but if you don't go down but to the docks, I would at also night recommend and... um oh that's from Bob Dylan song. Met up down at the docks at night. No, ooh, feeling it was best. Oh. No, tangled split up a little up on the docks. Split up on the docks at night with ta- ooh, Maybe tangled that's maybe blue. he That's one of my said, favorite songs. Maybe Tony said. He agreed, that maybe they agreed it was the, best, but he didn't agree. feeling it was best. No, I thought he said agreeing split it was best. I, well, Both agreeing we'll it up. was best. Okay, it's hard with Bob Dylan to understand we'll have to ask what him. he is saying. So, Bob, can so you please contact when he, us? He does listen to our podcast. But I would say, wherever you are, I can't stress enough that if, you're interested in writing, if you wanna if you're an aspiring writer but don't don't know how to get started, or if you're a fan who likes to talk about it and listen to find droopy. find something that's that you can afford that you can go to. They're all over the country. There's huge ones like BoucherCon, which is in a different place in the country every year, and that's probably the biggest mystery writers conference. There's the one we love that we go to every Veterans Weekend, Crime Bake. In, new in the boston crime area Bank. the new england crime bake which registration opens in may i think I hope I have and some it money. fills up in just a couple well, weeks well if there's a good author uh, i mean if there's a really well known author in this year even when there's a gardener yeah so we got to do it quick so, cuz when it was elizabeth george it yeah, Becky. The first quickly. year, Becky went. Elizabeth, and, uh, George. She came and sat next to me. That's right. We have a photo. We can. That that is on our yes, it is w- it's website. On our website. And she she was drawn to me. We're she not, was. We're not real. She felt, we're BFFs. I kind of thought you were just going that year because of Elizabeth George. But then you went last year too. No, I had yeah. fun. Yeah. I liked it. We have fun, and it's just fun to I hang, just hang out like with hanging out and drinking and there are people too. The- so so I guess our recommendation this week is to. If you're interested at all, especially, especially, I can't stress this enough. If you are an aspiring yes. writer and wanna and wanna either somehow get motivated or find a place to get advice or um, some, a lot of them have uh, critiques, which I know sounds scary,
1: um, but you have
0: to you have do to scary do things if you want to. be I mean, a writer. I'm not a writer, but, but I'm an artist, and I would say I. I don't lo- always love hearing criticism, but being having somebody critique your work, not shit all over it, That's, but it actually, gets better. That's actually it better. read it and, and look at it, or as an artist, they would be looking at it, tell you what they think is good about it, and, but tell you what they think you need to work on, not necessarily bad, but you need that. You need someone objective. And Even if you don't agree with all of it, it makes you think about your work, and, and it I, helps you improve. And when I first was trying to figure out a way to get started on my first mystery novel, after decades of saying I wanted to be a mystery writer, I went to my first crime bake. Harlan Coben was the Ooh. guest speaker, I think it was in 2007, and it was just very cool and empowering to be around all those people and i said by this time next year i'm going to have a manuscript i can pitch to an agent being around people who are are interested in the same creative endeavor that you are makes you feel makes you feel like you can do it i think but yes. it also encourages you it reminds me of when i was either when i was in art school or even just being with a group of artists or going to a show with a bunch of artists of an artist that you admire i mean it, it really makes you want to create stuff and it also helps you understand what you're doing in your process you know writing you know like other kinds of art everybody kind of has their own process and way of doing it and I think writers panic a lot about whether they're doing it right or what to do or how to do it I know I was stalled for a lot of years because I thought I had to have the whole book figured out and have an outline I went now you find out you're a pantser I'm a pantser because there's, I won't go into the whole thing, I get tired of hearing it, there's the seat of the pantsers, and there's the outliners, and blah, blah, blah. But you you get just talking to other people about how they do it, and you think, oh, you know, I'm not so alone in this, or I'm not so weird, or something after all. And also, from a practical standpoint, anybody who's wondering how to get a book published, or how to find an agent, you get a lot of advice. On that one panel they were talking about query letters, which are important, but somebody who's in the industry said that 90% of the authors she signs Meg Ruley Come from other authors. Yes. Now, that's not saying that you have to, but it it doesn't hurt to network. No. And meet authors. And I'm not saying try to foist your work on them, but if you meet somebody like you met at Crime Bake, Brenda, and you and Brenda Buchanan, and you guys shared work and read each other's work and stuff. We did. And, and Ma- I remember saying to her, she asked me if I'd read her manuscript, which became Quick Pivot, her first book in the sure. Joe, Gale. Joe Gale series. And she said, and I'll read yours. And I said, oh, I'm done with having people read mine. Blah blah blah. But of course, I she convinced me because she's a very nice person, but also persuasive. And she gave me a lot of good advice. And I realized the book wasn't done. And a cold and hard she, news. And you, neither of you recommended each other to a publisher. But even to, to, just ma- that, to the best of my knowledge, no author I've ever been friends with has recommended me to an agent or publisher. <laughs> but but you, you never know. But uh, but that's not the only reason you network either. You it's. Just really nice to hang around with people. They're who very do supportive do the same of each thing. other. Mainly, as people very... are not, they're not competitive with each no. other. They're not. Mean or na- nasty to each other Maine, behind their back. Maine they has a lot of supportive. writers. I think somebody said that it, per capita probably has more writers than any other state. And that's probably true. And lawyers. And lawyers who are writers. Yes. And people have said on many occasions, and I'm sure I've said this on, on our podcast, that Maine's mystery writing community is a, just a very friendly, generous, yeah. helpful there's community. A lot of them. And also, I, I've said this before, that nobody's... Success diminishes anyone else. No. It just helps make us all successful because mystery readers, readers in general, but mystery readers—they're not only going to read one person's book. No, books. you can't unless you read like one book every two years. Or and something. I will say, uh, every time I've been at one of these things where there's a noir at the bar, which was episode no. 19, and and we probably said a lot of the same things. You always hear people plug in other people's books. Yeah. And talking about other people in a positive way, and it's great. Yeah. So anyways, I think on we've that, done no, that we should. We've drawn I up. noticed that on the microwave, look, did you notice the microwave? Yeah, somebody left their fucking time. <laughs> uh, well, how do people do that? Uh, why do people do that? I don't know. It irks me. I noticed it. It irks it me it incredibly. Me it does. Anyway. Anyway, rate and review us. Yes. We, we have. We know you're out there rate and review us uh, and and but hey helps. talk to us. Also talk to us. Oh, yeah. You can you We'd can email be, us. We love we get so excited when we hear from We too. Oh God, we do. If we get a message we have to text each other. Did <laughs> you say we got out of yeah. Head? yeah. <laughs> but you can email us at crime at gmail yes. There's a contact form. Yes, I, Uncle yes. Yes. I think there's a contact form on our website. I know I always say that and I forget to check if it's still working. If there isn't but that's crime If there isn't one. I'll just give you go on our phone Facebook page and send know. us a message, or tweet at us and tell us it isn't there. Also, send us questions for Ask a Lawyer. We do plan to have Matt back. It's not that He's we don't just have really questions. He's busy right now. He's busy, and you and I, we we the three of us have schedules that are hard. Right to Right now, mesh. they're getting bad. Uh, hopefully, we'll straighten things out. But yes, we do like to have questions because it's hard for us to always think up. We do have questions for Matt, but we'd like to hear from you guys. And they don't have to be esoteric. You know, we also wouldn't mind if you if you have any crime that you think that we would we would be interested in. You can let us know. Yeah, we'd love we love to. We always love funny, to get ideas. Yes, we do. We have ideas of our own, but sometimes we have, it's nice to think of something that somebody else finds interesting that we don't know anything about. I mean, you never know. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I think that's, that's it. probably. And we want to thank again Think Tank Co working, which we have, haven't thanked in a while. You yes. can probably tell we were here tonight by the trucks roaring the by, by within inches of us. On because Interstate Two Ninety Five and poor Daisy is upset she can't be in the podcast I know, tonight. She can't and be Kibibi. in it. Kibibi's and the one also, me also out. we'd like to thank Soundjay for our sounds. Yeah, for our for our the free sounds. Yeah, free sounds. Soundjay. And we, if you if you want to do, Matt, even though he's not here, I miss him, Matt Nichols. Yes, I miss Matt. I miss. Him. And if you want to do, <laughs> if you want to do a podcast, I may end up cutting this out. If you want to do a podcast yourself or just find out more about podcasting, we have a great hosting format, Blueberry, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Yes, Blueberry without the E. And you can click on on our website. You can click on to go through to go to Blueberry and find out. We wouldn't be able to get this podcast out there if it hadn't been for Blueberry. No, no. And for Mo being smart. It costs us a small monthly fee. But we were able to do the hosting from our WordPress website. Mm-hmm. and and it has cool stats. We love our stats. We look at our we love to look and see what states. And, and what country? And what country? It's amazing. But we can break down each episode and see how many people. So, you people from New Hampshire who say you've listened to the League Yeah, Kenny we, Bruce know, you can, we it. know you have. We know you haven't. But you know what? Thank you. I want to thank California and Texas because I expect Maine to be up there. Yes. But California can, and Texas. It, it, consistently. I mean, I know they're big states, but consistently, still, California and Texas are our biggest listeners. Lately, our, Pennsylvania has been Pennsylvania up there. is up there, and thank you. We. So Blueberry's pretty cool. We love to check and see how many downloads we've. Oh had. my god! But my I'm favorite obsessive. thing is my favorite thing is checking the geography. And after the and, U.S., Canada likes to check. And we also want to thank Australia, Australia, because thank after you. the U.S. The, our biggest Britain. country is Australia, and sometimes Great Britain's up there. Because I think they, when they first get on, they think, "Oh, they'll be speaking English, so we'll understand what they're saying." And then they probably listen and say, "But I think what that is they shit? like cry." Yes. And then we have like Finland and Nor. And I know. I know. No, we have Ecuador. We have we have Ecuador. Sometimes you wonder if they just Hi. listen by accident. Ola. <laughs> that's, it, could, I could, it could be an american living there that's true so we want to thank all our listeners for listening we really do and and, uh, and we also want to say you don't know how appreciative we if are if anyone really likes if you do to want to check out blueberry for your own podcast and obviously anyone can podcast there's a <laughs> <laughs> there's a link on our site please use our site to go through to check out blueberry yeah and, uh, it and helps we appreciate it. it. helps us out. Just like giving, like, grabbing and rating on iTunes really and, helps, helps us. Yes. Get more people interested. And, and I know it's not your problem. We're not your problem. <laughs> but we could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we're kidding. I think it's, it's getting late. We, we, we ate late. this whole thing of brownies that you made for your daughter's Daisy Girls. Daisy um, Girl Scouts. See, they used What's to the matter with those kids. They that... used to have brownies as the youngest, but now they have daisies. Are daisies younger than brownies? Yes, five and six. Yeah. For kindergarten, first grade. Brownies used to be second grade. You know what my biggest memory of brownies as a child is when we lived in Dayton, Ohio. Mom and was a brownie. And man. mom was our leader and you had to bring a nickel dues every week. Yeah. And National Cash Register, which was one of the big employers. In the, um, in the area yeah. was on strike. And so all the girls who had dads who worked at National Cash Register didn't have to bring in their dues. Aww. Our little brownie troop political That's statement. That's cute. Well, yeah, we, $2, labor. our dues are $2. Whoa. I remember when I was in brownies and I, I was... I hated the those unit. I, I love the fact that they wear little vests now. I wish we had just And they one make them vest. optional. But you know we had to wear those ugly brown dresses and I the know beanies they were ugly yeah but but I think when I was in um by the time I was in juniors Whoever the lead, the leader was, all we had to do is get a. We, we got, rarely we just, we just wore our sash, sash over yeah. our clothes. And the great thing, what I love, what I loved in um, Girl Scouts, and this was again in Ohio, was the camping. They had some beautiful yes. Girl Scout campgrounds. There, there are nice campgrounds in Maine. Well, when we moved to Augusta when I was twelve, there was no Girl Scout troop. I ended my Girl Scout career. I stopped. But they, they m- mom wants to start it because they had brownies, yeah. and and it was a huge troop. And also, and it would have gotten in meet the way of. School. my dope smoking <laughs> we used to <laughs> I'm just joking. we used to meet at, mom we she doesn't listen no we used to meet at in the gym at school after school at and Mary's. i swear there were yeah and i swear there were about 30 or 40 girls wow. in that. now the one i'm in there were no open daisy troops and so these three women hannah went to a birthday party today too not to sound too much like a friggin mom you do i know it reminds me of that song by there's a song by michelle shocked Called Anchorage. I just posted on my Facebook because I was listening it to the other day. Where it's a it's a letter from her friend to her. She's talking about their past, how they used to have fun and rock out and uh, you know. And then she says, I. I feel like a house, or I sound like a housewife, and then she says, I feel like a housewife in that sound. But anyway, so uh, I was talking to another mother, mom, at this birthday party, mom. and she started her own Daisy Troop because there were none, and, th- and then it filled right up, and the one that I joined are these three mothers who th- each had a daughter in kindergarten in the same school, and there were no Daisy Troops open, so they started one. And they limited it to 12 girls, and there's only seven now. The thing I like about it is I like... I know I'm going to annoy some people because I'm a it, I'm They're a not listening anymore. They're, they've turned us I'm off. I'm a really... I'm but, a feminist. But I like yeah, activities that's all girls. I want there's them, nothing wrong with that, and I think that... Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with activities that are all No, boys there aren't. Too. There aren't. I like the, having gender-specific things to do because... I think it it strengthens your... My only issue with gender specificity is, is they when... have it, right? No. no. Okay, never mind. My only issue with gender specificity is... Specificity. Is when the activities are gender specific, not the people taking part in them. For instance, we're not going to do Pinewood Derby because that's for boys. Oh, yeah, that's silly. Or we're not going to play with Legos because that's for boys. Or we're only going to play with pink and pastel-colored Legos. Yeah. That bullshit, I won't go into my whole how girls are forced to be pink little princesses yeah. from the time they're in the womb or any of that bullshit. But I, <laughs> I think it's good for people to hang with their own gender and
1: and I don't see anything wrong do with like, single-sex
0: education. I said that about the youth center earlier that they used to be split. There used to be a boys and there was a girls and they should have kept it that way because part of the problem when I was there is I noticed that they were trying to flirt with each other and crap because they had classes together that they were not. Having the other Focusing. gender there always changes the dynamic. Different. I know there's this, there's this there's a stereotype of cattiness and stuff, which I have never, I've never experienced I've never that. experienced that. I have found I've worked with many people. I've had many different jobs in my life. But I found that when women are working together, even when they don't agree with each other, they try to work together. My work experience, and and I know this sounds generalizing, but it's just my work experience, especially my recent my most recent newspaper work experience, is that the women are willing to do the shit work. They're willing to do whatever needs to be done to get the job done, and there's very little ego involved where I find men want to do the things that are going to make them look good or they're going to show good, they're going to get a little recognition for a lot of shit work or small detail work goes by the wayside. I think there are a lot of men who aren't used to doing the small detail work that needs to be done to make sure things work well because in their home life, I think a lot of men had moms and wives and other people who who take, Mm -hmm. uh, take that upon themselves, whether it's the woman's choice or not. And I found that women are the women i worked with were willing to do all the things that needed to be done and were much more detail oriented and much more wanted to take care of all the details of a job and were much less willing and cuz this has always been one of my pet peeves to to either phone it in or take shortcuts that maybe made things kind of look okay on That's the surface but must <laughs> But I'm not talking about her, but about Pam Ames. (laughs) This was different. She worked really hard to cover all that shit up. I don't know how we got into all this. Maybe we'll end up just Because we were talking about brownies. But in any case, I think that's probably it for this week. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. yes. If anyone hasn't watched Shit Town, they really have to. Yes. And we're not making fun of Uncle Disabled Jimmy. People. I like Uncle Jimmy. I liked him in the background. He was af- offering yes. affirmations. And, yes. And that's, I that's like it. that a lot. Yes. God, yeah. So that was this week. We're not sure what we'll be doing next week as always. And I guess that's it. Good night. Till so next week. Good night. <laughs> I'm sure this is one of the reasons I'm no longer employed at my old job. But I used to say because <laughs> there were a lot of and I used to say still leaked out how great it was to because I was in an industry journalism that right up until the end <laughs> well, I find and then it, I found out I find that